Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places. Good afternoon. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldrow, and this is a public affair. Happy Tuesday, y'all. Today, we're talking with Dr. Tracy Wilkinson, who is an assistant professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. Her research focuses on improving young people's access to reproductive health services from the perspective of a general practitioner. How are you doing today, Tracy? I am awesome and so excited to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining us. We're also joined today by Rebecca Wang, who is a legal support counselor at if slash when slash how, lorrying for reproductive justice. She helped to launch the organization's new judicial bypass wiki, which offers a wealth of information on parental involvement laws. Rebecca, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I want to jump right into the conversation. If you want to join the conversation, the number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. Huge shout out today to our engineer and producer, Rochelle, who's doing double duty very last minute due to some COVID complications we're having here today in the studio. Rochelle, you're the absolute best. I don't know what we would do without you, Um, and I'm afraid to find out, but I I will start by saying, you know, I think a lot of people have kind of had an attitude about Roe v. Wade being overturned, um, that if if folks really desperately need access to an abortion, they can go to a state where abortion is still legal, that, you know, this may make abortion that much less convenient, but it doesn't actually uh, you know, really prevent people from from navigating abortion. I think that conversation has left young women, particularly adolescent women, out. Um, it's also left poor folks out and and a lot of other folks out. Um, but but Tracy, you know, thinking about how how young people access reproductive health care, um, what does what does this mean for for young people to you? What have you what do you think about in terms of of access for for teens and young women? Yeah, I think what you said earlier is a really great point, and I want to kind of just focus on that for a second. Um, I think that for decades, we have forgotten the marginalized communities that have never had access to abortion. And right now we're talking about it because all of a sudden those communities are a lot larger than we would like to admit and include huge swaths of our population multiple millions of people in states that are suddenly losing access. But this is not new. Um, And young people have struggled to have access to abortion for decades um, and have been some of the first people cut out of access due to restrictive legislation that's been passed at a state level for years. Do you think, Rebecca, do you think that we want more teenagers to have kids, that the overturning of, of Roe v. Wade is really our our stance on saying, hey, we want to destigmatize teen pregnancy and we want more teenagers um, who are pregnant to be forced to maintain a pregnancy and give birth, um, you know, because we, we want we want more teen parents. Uh, No, I don't think that's what we're saying. I think what we hope the messaging would be here is absolutely we want to destigmatize abortion. Um, What we want to be saying is we want to support young people who choose to parent. And also we want to support young people who choose not to parent um, in the same way we would want to support um, adults making those same decisions. Why is it important that young people be able to bypass their their parents' permission when it comes to reproductive health. And I, I'm not just talking about abortion. I'm also talking about birth control and contraceptive and, and sex health education and things like that. Why is it important that, that young people um, have, have the opportunity not to consult with their parents or get their parents' permission in order to, to access their reproductive rights? 
Yeah, uh, I'll start off by saying most young people, when given the choice, do choose to involve an adult that they trust. Um, and in circumstances when they can't, I, I think we can all imagine what circumstances those might be. It could be a young person does not have a good trusting relationship with a parent and guardian in their lives. Um, could be they risk being kicked out of the home. Maybe they risk violence or abuse. Um, and a lot of times I think for young people, that's just an uncomfortable conversation um, with adults in their lives. Even if there is a trusting relationship, uh, a lot of times young people would just rather make those decisions on their own. Um, and I think we can all speak to a lot of those decisions we would rather make in private. Oh, absolutely. I feel like as a as a person who had an abortion as a teenager um, and did, I did go to court and and had was given permission not to have my parents permission to have an abortion. I had a really wonderful attorney who represented me and a really beautiful, gracious judge who was completely invested in like my future and what I wanted for myself. Um, and it wasn't that my parents, I think, would have had a violent reaction or a hostile reaction. It was that I wanted the dignity and privacy of really making a, a decision for myself um, that was, you know, that was so, you know, complexly related to my sex life in a, in a way that I think a lot of us are like, that's our parents are not the people we usually want to really just like deep dive our sexuality or our sexual exploration with. Um, and so, you know, having adults who were advocates for me was so important and not being on my de dependent on my parents who that's not necessarily their area of expertise or their area of skill in terms of navigating um, was really important to me as a young person. Rebecca, I want to ask you, you know, is I, I would imagine it's fairly controversial to kind of bypass parents. And I think there's something interesting about this because the young person who is pregnant is also a parent at that time, right? Like, so there is, you know, kind of a, an interesting um, area about who's making decisions for who in this you know, in, in this dynamic, for folks who think young people are not equipped to make that kind of decision, um, you know, we don't let young people make a lot of medical decisions about themselves. It's really normalized in, in our culture. It's not necessarily considered developmentally appropriate for young people to make medical decisions about themselves. How do you how do you talk to, to folks about whether or not kids are ready to to make decisions about their their reproductive health and well-being? Uh, well, I always want to stress that young people, first of all, are people. Uh, I, I know that uh, could be controversial, but that applies even in cases of, of medical decisions. What we want is we want to make sure young people are informed and, and have access to the information they need to make these decisions for themselves. And oftentimes, young people do know exactly what they want. They've done the research. Um, they ask all the right questions. Um, and if it wasn't for this kind of pervasive sense of we need to protect these children and these children can't possibly know what they're doing, if it wasn't for that kind of being stuck in that mentality, um, I mean, I don't see any reason why young people should not be able to make these decisions for themselves. I think a lot of times when we talk about young people in pregnancy, we think about adolescent girls, right? We, we think about teen moms. Um, we don't think about like eight or nine year olds who get their periods, right? Um, so, so Tracy, I think, you know, I've heard for years now that younger and younger people are, are experiencing menstruation, are, are kind of capable of experiencing pregnancy. And I wonder, you know, if a, if a nine-year-old is experiencing a pregnancy, you would think you would want to involve the, the parents or the guardians. And also you would think that it's quite possible a parent or guardian is already involved. Can you talk about, you know, what what this means for, for kids in, in pretty young age groups um, in terms of, you know, losing Roe v. Wade and, and what that means for, for kids who I think when we start to talk about younger kids and pregnancy, we start to really realize that it's often linked to being a survivor of sexual assault or sexual abuse. Um, so can you can you kind of talk to us a little bit about what overturning Roe v. Wade means for those young people. Yeah, so um, 
baptism that Rebecca said earlier as well, um, a majority of people involve a trusted adult with these decisions. And when you examine the data, the younger the patient is, the more likely they are to involve a trusted adult. Um, and I also like to remind people that there are already laws and statutes that cover and protect these very young individuals. Um, states already have laws when it comes to consent and mandatory reporting for sexual activity below certain ages. And so those laws are already there um, for these instances that, as you mentioned, tend to be, um, you know, the most extreme and sometimes like devastating cases um, where um, more people have to be involved because of the age of the patient when they present pregnant. Um, and so I would argue from a developmental standpoint that the legal age of 18 means nothing to me um, from a medical and developmental perspective. That's a legal number. And a lot of pediatricians will say that, um, and, and science supports that brain develop continues well into the mid-20s. Um, and so what I do think this is about is making sure that young people are equipped to make these decisions about their body, trusted to make these decisions about their body and supported to make these decisions. And when we as a society say that there are certain people that can and cannot make these decisions, we're hurting them all. And we're sending a very strong message to young people that we don't think that they're, they're, they're smart enough, they're strong enough, or they're ready enough to make these decisions. And I'm not really sure what happens on the day of their 18th birthday that like suddenly flips and they're ready. Because if you keep them sheltered from all these decision-making moments before 18 and then expect them to do it suddenly on their own, um, they're not going to succeed. And that is what we see often with, you know, young adults making decisions in healthcare, not knowing stuff about their bodies or about reproductive health care. And so I think it's really important that we start shifting this into, you know, mobilizing and activating young people to take care of themselves and their bodies. I think that one of the things that makes that really complicated, Dr. Tracy Wilkins, and I'm going to direct this question at you, Rebecca Wang, um, is this idea that an abortion is somehow kind of this get off the hook, get out of jail free card, and almost that an abortion can be used to cover up abuse um, from from an adult predator who may have impregnated a, a child. Um, how how do you talk about you know a young person who might want privacy and support around getting an abortion, um, and that means that the person who assaulted them might not necessarily. Um, face the consequences that they should for, for harming them. Yeah, I would say it comes back to centering the young person uh, in all of this. Um, their privacy should be tantamount. They should be allowed to make that decision for themselves. Um, there is a lot of stigma uh, for young people who are seeking to end a pregnancy in general. Um, so I think it doesn't take a leap to, to, to see why somebody would prefer that. Um, and I think a lot of times these conversations are still centering uh, adults that are around this young person and still not the young person themselves. Um, and, and I would always encourage people to, to come back to the person who needs support in that situation is always going to be the young person, including any decisions that they want to make um, around their bodies uh, coming out of that. Dr. Tracy Wilkins, can we talk a little bit about the the health impact of pregnancy? I am a person who's experienced multiple pregnancies. I had a very medically complex pregnancy. Um, and I think, you know, that if you've never been pregnant, it's easy to forget that it's 24 hours a day for 40 weeks. Um, and there are some real um, intense health implications of pregnancy, particularly for young people. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about what it means for young people to, to navigate, you know, maintaining a, a pregnancy or, or carrying a pregnancy full term and what that can mean um, for a young person's health? Yeah, I mean, just like anything in healthcare, we don't always make it easy. Um, and so talking about navigating care and finding care is hard for adults to do, but it's definitely hard for um, minors or young people to do, um, especially when we put up barriers based on age. Um, and some of the health can 
you know, health consequences that you have to think about are different based on your own personal medical history, but also on your age. Um, a lot of people look at pregnancy as, you know, this amazing moment in, in your life. And it is for a lot of people, but it's also dangerous to be pregnant. It's dangerous to be pregnant um, in certain areas of this country without access to maternity care. It's dangerous to be pregnant in this country if you're not white. Um, your risk of death is greater when you become pregnant automatically. And so I think we don't, we do a disservice when we forget about those elements. Um, and, and when we think about pregnancy as only having those happy outcomes. Yeah. Um, I, I heard a data point recently, and I, I'm, I'm, I'll ask you about the accuracy of this, but it basically said globally, girls between the ages of 14 and 19, the number one cause of death is complications related to pregnancy and birth. Oh, gosh, I would have to look that up, but I would not be surprised because if you're talking about globally, um, maternal care is a huge issue of mortality and morbidity for women. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that was a true fact for 14 to 19 year olds. Um, we, you know, we, uh, oh, what's the word? We make a really big deal out of pregnancy. We make it so wonderful looking and all the pictures and all of the posts about pregnancy. It's such a joyous moment. But there, for anybody that's been pregnant, we also know the side effects and what happens to our bodies afterwards and how those are never the same after <laughs> you give birth. And so, you know, I can't tell you how many times after I had my own children that women were like, oh, yeah, yeah, that happens. But nobody talked about it before. I feel and like we've got to name some of those things on the radio, especially for people who have who haven't experienced pregnancy, who don't know what it's like to throw up every day for 40 weeks plus two days who don't know what it's like to, you know, have constant chronic indigestion and heartburn who, you know, don't know what it's like to have swelling of their entire body. Right. Like naming this isn't just like some comfortable walk in the park. It is a tremendously it's an incredible level of physical strain. And I can't imagine expecting somebody who is 12 years old or 14 years old or 16 years old who does not want to have that experience, forcing them to go through that experience. Um, and I also think I think there are complications that are additional when you are a really young person with a really young body. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering, Tracy, if you can speak to a little bit of, of that. Are there things that make pregnancy particularly risky for, for younger people? Yeah. I mean, if you think of just like, you know, your body being able to birth uh, an infant, right? The hips that you need, the size that you need, um, that is all really on a smaller scale when you're 12 compared to when you're 22. Um, and so the repercussions of like pelvic floor dysfunction, um, you know, having to have a C-section because the baby won't fit. Um, and, and that's an operation that is a, is a, you know, invasive operation that you have to, ha to have to get that baby out are all things that you have to think about when you have a younger patient. Thank you so much for speaking to that, because I think oftentimes, too, we kind of transform young people who are pregnant into um, like this vessel for this baby. Like you should do this and then you should give this baby to somebody who really wants a baby. And we act as though pregnancy and birth are these really kind of simple, quick things that you can get through in order to support someone else's parental dreams. Um, and I think there's there's some real parts of that story that are missing. Rebecca, in working to support young people, uh, you know, after Roe v. Wade was was overturned, Folks started talking a lot about what it means to go out of state to get an abortion. And immediately I thought about the fact that it is illegal in most places to take a minor across state lines without parental permission. Um, I would imagine it is particularly illegal to take a minor across state lines for a medical procedure that their parents are either not aware of or do not approve of. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the, the current landscape means um, in terms of access to abortion and, and having to leave the state? state to get access to an abortion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you already spoke to some of the barriers that exist and how some people are really taking for granted just how easy it is to travel across state lines for medical care. Um, even when we're talking about an adult who is able to travel across state lines on their own, we're talking about time off work, we're talking about time away from family care responsibilities. Uh, and that's assuming the state they're going to doesn't have some kind of mandatory waiting period. 
um, up to 72 hours sometimes where they have to find lodging, they have to get food, all of these things have to be figured out, the cost of transport before they even leave their state. Uh, all of those barriers are absolutely compounded when we're talking about young people. Um, uh, like you said, young people generally cannot be transported across state lines without parent permission. And sometimes, you know, adults who want to help um, offer transportation can themselves open themselves up to, to legal risk for helping a young person. Um, and even, even assuming best case scenario, a young person is able to find transportation, get to a state where uh, abortion care is available. Um, most states in this country have what we call a parental involvement law, um, which means even going into a state that on its surface seems friendly to abortion care, uh, that young person may still need a parent's permission before they can get an abortion or their parents still needs to be notified before they can get an abortion. So, uh, and, and even the only way to get around that most of the time is for that young person to seek what's called a judicial bypass, which means they have to go to court, they have to schedule a meeting with a judge, they have to you know, divulge all of these personal details to that judge, a, a complete stranger, and that judge then gets to decide whether that young person gets to have an abortion without involving a parent. Um, but regardless, most of the time, an adult is going to be involved against that young person's will. I think because I had such a friendly experience with a judge, I assume that the majority of judges are, you know, like East Side feminists from Madison, Wisconsin. Um, I'm curious, how often do how often do judges say no? This kid cannot get an abortion. This young person um, who is who is trying to make this decision for themselves. Uh, is is not capable of doing that, but is capable of raising a kid. I do think that that's kind of an interesting part of this is to say you're not uh, competent enough to determine what is right for you and your body at this time, but you are competent enough to maintain a healthy pregnancy, give birth and raise a kid. Yeah, unfortunately, judges do deny judicial bypass and, you know, how friendly a judge is. And I, I want to stress there are absolutely very friendly, very well-informed judges that are strong advocates for young people's rights in this regard. But whether your judge is friendly is going to vary depending on where you are. Um, so county to county, that's going to vary. Um, and the questions that the judges ask a lot of the times are going to be incredibly subjective. So, you know, one of the things a judge looks for as part of whether they will grant a young person uh, the, the right to get an abortion without a parental involvement is questions around maturity. And I think maturity itself is such an undefined concept in these proceedings. Judges are really asking whatever they want. So uh, what's your GPA in school? Uh, do you care for younger siblings? Are you making money? Are you saving money? Um, so wait, are you saying, are they going to ask how mature you are to decide whether or not you should have an abortion or whether or not you should not have an abortion? Like you're super immature and therefore you should, you should definitely not have an abortion. You should definitely have to have a kid. Yeah, this is, this is the really messed up part is they're looking to see whether you're mature and well-informed enough to have an abortion, not whether you're like ready, able, and willing to, to have a child. That's not what the judge is interested in. So they're asking all of these questions. A lot of, a lot of times, again, subjective, has nothing to do with the young person's um, actual, what, what they want to do coming out of it. It's all to determine, oh, I'm just going to put you on the spot. I'm going to evaluate these things about you. And if you don't sufficiently impress me, um, you will carry a pregnancy to term against your will. That's essentially how that comes down to it. Oof, that's... That's a really that's an, a really ugly practice to, to force a young person to engage in. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to a public affair on WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Ali Muldrow, and today we're talking about youth access to abortion with Dr. Tracy Wilkinson and legal counsel Rebecca Wang. If you want to join this conversation with a question or a comment, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. I, I guess I want to ask you all, Tracy, I think, you know, why why is it important to you as a pediatrician to advocate for the reproductive rights of young people? Oh, gosh, it is like the whole reason I do my job and the reason I love my job. I think as a general pediatrician, getting the opportunity to stand up and say that young people should have this right and deserve to have this right um, is an honor. Um, and I stand oftentimes in a state house that 
my words will never change the people that are voting. Um, but I stand up so that other people see me. And mostly I'm hoping that young people are seeing somebody stand up for them um, because there are not a lot of people in society that that do, unfortunately. And um, and I think it's important for young people to see that there are adults that believe in them. I mean, if you look at like the last few years in our country, it's not necessarily like the conclusion you would come to. Um, and so I really think um, it's, yeah, it's, it's an honor to do my job. And I wish that there were more people um, doing it with me. Is it strange for you to think about yourself as a kid and go, I had more rights over my body than this generation of young people? I had I had a different um, level of, of, of political privacy and autonomy than the, the folks I treat or serve today. Um, and and how do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, it's weird. I always like to say I'm not that old, but now I'm becoming like that old to say like, you know, when I was a little kid, um, <laughs> but it's also it's also sad going to clinic now and talking to young people and making sure that they're aware in a few weeks, the law is changing. So you need to be having conversations with your partner. You need to be thinking about um, pregnancy prevention if you're not intending to have a baby with this partner. Um, you need to be having these conversations ahead of time because now more than ever, your guarantee of access to evidence-based compassionate healthcare is no longer a given in our state. And that's really sad. Tracy, I want to talk to you a little bit about what schools can do right now. Um, so should schools be providing contraceptive? What kind of sex ed should our young people have access to? When you talk about, you know, here are real ways to prevent unwanted pregnancies. One of the number one things that comes up is education and access to contraceptive. Um, talk to me about what you think we should be doing um, to you know, prevent unwanted pregnancy to, to help young people avoid situations where they're navigating a very legally complex, you know, situation in terms of their reproductive rights. What do you want to see from schools? Oh, I want to see so much. Um, <laughs> what I would say is that there's the, the, the best thing and the only thing that has been shown to impact unintended pregnancy rates is access to contraception. We know that. And so all of our efforts should be going towards that as we are losing access to abortion. Um, unfortunately, that's not the landscape that we live in. So, you know, a vast majority of states do not require sex education. Of the states that require sex education, a lot of them don't require that it's medically accurate. And of the states that require sex education, a lot of them require that it emphasizes abstinence only. So we are not really equipping young people with just baseline information um, about their bodies, about sex, about fertility and consent and all the topics that we should be talking about. It's just not happening. And instead, young people rely on other sources for that information. And, um, you know, we should be wary of what all those other sources are. They tend to be the Internet. They tend to be pornography and they tend to be their friends not great examples all the time of like healthy, happy sex um, that is based on, you know, equality, that is based on consent, um, that shows these conversations happening. Um, you know, I challenge a lot of my residents to think about most of the stuff we see on TV or on like, you know, movies. We see people kissing and then we see them wake up the next morning. There's not really a lot of examples of like that conversation that we want them to be having, you know, and um, or even conversations about consent. That's never brought up in the like mainstream media. There are no examples of it. And so it is it kills me when people just look at young people as being not smart and making bad decisions when we don't give them any tools to make other decisions. We expect them to just figure it out and to know it. And we are doing a really bad job at like preparing young people for this part of their lives, which is an amazing part of their lives. Puberty and adulthood is amazing. And I think as a society, we get really skittish around these time periods and we don't like to talk about it. And that um, is why we kind of have the outcomes we do. Oh, thank you so much for speaking to that. I, I want to ask you, Rebecca, you know, in, in, in talking to young people about, because I think 
what you just said works both ways, right? Like young people don't have the information they meet they need to make good decisions about sex. So how do young people get the information they need to make decisions about abortion? Like how where are young people connecting with you all as resources, Rebecca? How do how do young people find you? Um, and you know, because I'm like that there's something pretty resourceful about a young person in in today's world who's like, no, I know this is what I want and I have to find the people who can support me to do it. So, you know, in your experience, how are young people, if they're not learning about you at school, if they're not learning about you at home, um, where where how are they finding you? Yeah, I think young people are incredibly resourceful. I think young people today especially have to be really discerning about, you know, what information they find online is accurate and um, I think they are outstanding at, at parsing resources. So um, we know there are uh, in states uh, organizations set up specifically to help young people around access to abortion, navigating the judicial bypass process. Um, so our partners like Jane's Due Process in Texas, Text Abbey in North Carolina, the Indiana Judicial Bypass Project in Indiana. A lot of times when folks are Googling, you know, um, minor abortion or judicial bypass, they are finding their way to those organizations or to us. We operate a judicial bypass wiki. It's kind of the at a glance map of what the law is for young people in each state. If they are trying to get an abortion, um, we walk them through what it means to talk to their parent if they want to involve a parent. And if they can't, we walk them through what it means to uh, get a judicial bypass. And we also operate a helpline at reprolegalhelpline.org. Um, if young people don't know where to start, they can just give us a call and we can walk them A through Z through what the process looks like. Do you worry that young people who reach out to you all for support will be criminalized? That young people who type into Google and click on you will go to jail, will be be forced to to maintain a preg- pregnancy while incarcerated um, and will end up serving time um, for, for wanting an abortion or, or pursuing an abortion or thinking about an abortion as an option for themselves or their friends? I know right now there's a lot of concern about kind of digital security. Uh, Everybody is concerned about what they're searching on the internet and how that could be connected back to them. Um, I always stress that the number one thing is for everybody, not just young people, to to think carefully about what information they're voluntarily sharing with their peers, um, family members, friends uh, about uh, their personal medical decisions. Uh, The biggest concern here is not you know, necessarily what they're typing into the Google search bar. Although I think that is important to, to think about. I don't want to kind of fear monger or scare people out of searching for the information that they need during this time. I think, you know, I don't I don't want people to be afraid of searching for information or searching for support. And I think simultaneously, I live in a state where it is a felony to get an abortion um, and who that's going to be enforced on, I imagine are the people who are pursuing the most support and resources, right? Because those are the folks who are, are going to be using the internet to access the, that support. Those are the folks who are going to be risking talking to a stranger about what they need, right? Um, and so I think young people are, are specifically positioned to be criminalized by the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Um, Tracy, I think... I think this puts doctors in a really interesting position as well, right? Um, I think you want to be able to talk to your doctor, to come to your doctor for a pregnancy test. I, I've been really concerned about what doctors are obligated to do um, in terms of, of notifying, you know, what, what is now being considered, um, you know, violence, which is the termination of, of a pregnancy. So how do, you, how do you navigate if a young person comes to you and says, hey, I, I think I might be pregnant. What are my options? Um, how do you navigate that conversation? And what is your responsibility to come forward if a, a young person is is interested in terminating a pregnancy? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that you're seeing these ripple effects happening all over the country, actually. Um, as uh, physicians are getting a crash course in the law. Um, You know, we are seeing an intrusion of legislation into our medical practice in ways that have not really been on our radar before. Don't get me wrong, there have been years of restrictions towards abortion providers um, happening. Um, But for a lot of clinical providers, that's been blissfully in like a corner and not impacting them. But the way a lot of these laws are written, they can impact 
physicians of all types. They can impact emergency room doctors, psychiatrists, primary care doctors, dermatologists. Um, and so all of a sudden there is an awareness and a chilling effect happening um, amongst clinical providers. Um, in Indiana, we just went through and continue to watch our attorney general attack one of our abortion providers pretty publicly, um, pretty viciously and on a national platform. And so it is terrifying to think that any of us could be next. And I think that um, nobody, whether it's a judge or a pharmacist or a clinical provider or a nurse or a social worker wants to be the next face of like a state case that goes national. And so it's very chilling um, and it's fast moving. These laws are moving really fast and changing quickly. Um, you know, we have a law in Indiana that's going into effect September 15th. We have a legislative session starting a few months later. We're sure that the law will be, you know, changed a little bit and tweaked a little bit. And so how do you communicate all these little nuances to all clinical systems, um, which is which is why it's really, really stressful and devastating that we have like allowed the legislation of medicine to happen. Um, and, and I suspect and anticipate that this is just the tip of the iceberg. We are already seeing attacks on trans care happen, been successful in other states. And, you know, we are anticipating that that will be the next attack here too. Um, and so this has really opened the floodgates for a lot of, um, of legislating of decisions that should be left to patients and left in their hands, regardless of the age that they are. Mm. Thank you so much for speaking to that. And I think it's a pretty terrifying thing to think about like our, our you know, I think like we were, America has this relationship with like universal health care that is I kind of want to keep like politics out of the doctor's office. Right. I think that's part of the reason folks are willing to pay into insurance is because I think we are we are a society that values privacy um, and autonomy and choice. Um, and so to, to think, you know, our government is not going to pay for our health care, but is going to control it um, is a really is, is a really interesting space to be in and and to see you know your profession politicized to the point of people being terrified to engage in best practices with their patients um is is really has has been pretty gripping you know you you've i've heard stories about people being afraid to treat ectopic pregnancies right like waiting until an ectopic pregnancy is really dangerous or really harmful out of fear of you know criminalization i think part of the heart of the question i just asked you tracy is should young people trust their doctors right now. If you are a young person and you need to ask your doctor, hey, I think I might be pregnant. What are my options? Does that young person need to know that their doctor has to inform somebody that they, you know, were were interested in terminating a pregnancy? You know, I, t I tell all doctor, all patients this, um, regardless of their age, you should find a doctor that practices patient-centered care that you feel like is listening to you and advocating for you, regardless of what you're going there for. Because I get a lot of text messages and emails from friends and families and colleagues when they interact with the healthcare system and they don't feel that way. Mm. And so I think that all of us should strive to find those providers that deliver that level of care. And those are the providers I think that are going to be the best at making sure that those decisions um, are kept with you and are advocating for you to be able to get to that care if you need to get somewhere else. Um, and so... I don't know if I can give a blanket recommendation um, other than to say that there are people out there, there are clinical providers that truly believe in this. Um, and I encourage you to to find one of them because um, they're awesome once you do. I think so often we like to think of certain people in our lives as politically neutral, like a, a politically neutral person. Um, and I, I think I thought that for a long time, you know, about like my mental health. Like I had I worked with a psychologist for a really long time. And after Trump was elected, I for the first time in my entire like time of working with her, been like a decade, I was like, who did you vote for? Um, you know, I was like, I can't we can't continue this relationship of you caring for my mental health if, you know, I don't know where you stand. Um, and I think 
think that that is an interesting space to be in as, as a society and as a community where we have to be more aware of where where one another fall on the political spectrum because it is an indicator of the treatment and care we will receive. Rebecca, I want to ask you, you know, um, I'm sorry, Tracy, I feel like you wanted to respond to that. So I want to well, go Well, I to wanted it. to say that, like, um, Rebecca said something earlier that actually was completely um, true, where, you know, our job as clinicians is not to bring our politics into the room. It's actually to bring all of the evidence-based options into the room and trust the patient to decide. Mm. And that is what you should be looking for in a physician or a clinician. Um and so I just wanted to clarify that I think that that's what's important. Um, and uh, I know that there are lots of people I take care of that don't agree with me on a lot of different things, but that's not my decision. That's not my place to change them or preach to them or talk to them about that. My job is to present them all the evidence-based medicine that I know and let them decide. Oh, thank you so much for speaking to that, Tracy. And I hope that there is just a lot of doctors like you in Indiana right now. Um, but I, I want to move over to Rebecca, because I think one of the really interesting things about the way you're positioned in this work is that your job is to stand up for kids. Your job is to stand up for young people. And I think folks who are part of the pro-life movement say us, too. We are also standing up for young people. We are also standing up for the rights of, of children. How do you have that that conversation in which you it's almost as if the rights of one young person are being pitted against the rights of another? Yeah, I, I think it comes down to um, fundamentally wanting, again, uh, like we stressed, wanting to make sure young people have access to all the information, accurate information they need, um, access to medical providers that they trust, access to adults that they trust so that they can make the best decision they can for themselves. Um, and I don't want to get into the kind of the us versus them mentality, but what grounds me in this work and what grounds our organization in this work is regardless of what decision the young person makes, we want to advocate for them having the resources they need to make that decision and be supported in that decision. Um, and for us, you know, if a young person says, I'm interested in being a parent, how do I go about that? We're going to provide them the resources they need to do that. And if they say, I'm not interested in being a parent, what are my options? We're going to walk them through that. Um, we, we are not trying to push a, a decision on the young person. Um, it doesn't matter to us ultimately what the young person decides to do. What matters to us is that they are supported 100% in that decision um, and are not made to feel ashamed for whatever that decision may be. I think the idea of a young person being supported 100% in any decision that they make around pregnancy is so incredibly complicated. I think young people access support around abortion, have an abortion. And oftentimes, even though I had an abortion as a young person where I felt incredibly supported, I still had to walk, uh, you know, walk into a clinic where there were people like screaming at me that I was a murderer. Right. Like I had to confront the people who didn't agree with that. And it, there was no space for me to just have a supportive private experience because that's not the reality of, of of our of our society right now and and it hasn't been the reality of our it wasn't that wasn't the reality 20 years ago you know when I was a young person so I I think and then I think what does it mean to support young people in having a kid like you know the young the folks I grew up with who made a different decision as me at the same time um, and what did their long-term support look like around parenting and so many young people who experience pregnancy end up parenting alone, end up parenting in poverty, end up parenting in abusive situations. Um, and so when you're talking about what kind of support do young people who decide to have kids need, I'm really curious, Rebecca, how do you how do you support somebody, you know, long term in in parenting, especially in a society that you know, slut shames young mothers, especially in a society that has so much stigma around pregnancy, no matter how old you are. Um, how, how do you how do you provide that 100 percent support that folks need? I, I think the first step is definitely working to destigmatize young people's parenting decisions. I think for a long time um, we saw a lot of major campaigns on preventing teen pregnancy, which, again, is based on this idea that we don't trust young people to make their decisions and we want to deny them autonomy and adults must know better. Uh, so I think number one is just kind of moving collectively toward a place where 
we really center young people in their decisions, make them feel safe to make the decisions they want to make. And then, you know, as with all parents, you know, this country is not super supportive of people who want to parent. But, you know, as with all people, what does it mean to expand support for parents, financial support, um, supporting parental leave? Um, What does it mean to support parents who want to go back to school? I think those are all things uh, we need to work toward collectively as a society. Um, you know, it's not uh, enough to be pro-life. You have to think, what are we actually doing to support people who want a parent uh, in this country? And I think all of that that applies to young people also applies to adults who um, are thinking about parenting and want to parent, but can't because of financial barriers. Maybe they don't have the support they wish they had uh, in their life. Uh, but those are all things that we can fix from a political perspective. Tracy, I know you've got to get going, but I just want to thank you so much for for joining us today. And I guess if I was going to ask you kind of one last question, it would be, you know, what are the ways that people can support you in the work that you're doing? Um, What are are ways that folks who want to, you know, folks who remember what it was like to be a young person and want to make sure that young people have bodily autonomy and have choices and get to make the decisions that are the best for them and their futures. How do those folks support the work that you're doing and support the young people in their communities? Um, Yeah, I would say that, you know, anybody saying that they trust young people to make these decisions is helpful, especially like people that nobody expects to say that. So a parent saying that is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, somebody who has young kids or teenage kids saying that it's really powerful. Um, And then finding out who are the organizations in your state doing this work um, and and trying to figure out how you can support them. For a lot of those organizations, sending money is a huge help, um, but there are other ways that they might need help. And, um, you know, even becoming a legal advocate for those going through the judicial bypass process, like that could be another way to help. But um, I encourage people to plug into the organizations that are already doing this work. They are doing amazing work and they've been doing it for years. And so there's no need to kind of reinvent the wheel. Um, But if you're really passionate about this and want to help young people, like figure out a way to plug into the wheel and use your voice to, to advocate for those young people yourself. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Tracy Wilkinson on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. I'm your host, Ali Maldrow. It's been such a a pleasure to hear from you. And I I do hope folks, you know, take your advice and get involved locally in the organizations that are doing this work to support young people. Rebecca, you're you're with us for a little bit longer. And so thinking about, you know, what what folks can do really to, to help young people yeah, engage in judicial bypass, but also just, you know, get get their needs met and, and navigate their choices in ways that allow for them to live in dignity. Um, what what do you what do you recommend that folks do? Yeah, a, a lot of young people are already leading this work themselves in kind of sharing their stories about what it means to be a young person who has chosen to parent or a young person who has chosen not to. Uh, about being a young person who has navigated the judicial bypass uh, process. Um, And a lot of that has highlighted that this is an incredible barrier to a lot of people, even people who have really um, streamlined what they describe as affirming uh, experiences uh, with the judicial bypass process, would still rather that they never had to do that whole thing to begin with. So there is an effort to uh, repeal parental involvement laws across the country. Of course, we'd rather have judicial bypass as long as parental involvement exists, but the ultimate goal is to move to a place where young people never have to think about involving an adult they don't have to involve, never have to think about going to a court to talk to a stranger. Um, So I think that's the number one thing is advocating for the repeal of parental involvement laws. Um, And also, as Dr. Wilkinson mentioned at the top, a lot of legislation being passed doesn't explicitly include young people's rights in reproductive care access. Um, and moving toward talking to legislators about supporting that kind of legislation, not being afraid, not being afraid to say young people deserve bodily autonomy um, and access to care, including abortion, um, and making sure that's codified. I want to talk about things that kind of more specifically impact young people in terms of abortion. So there has been a lot of popularity of laws that ban abortion beyond a certain point. And one of the things I've become incredibly aware of, especially in working with young people, is that young people detect 
pregnancy later um, than older people. A lot of times because puberty and menstruation mean that folks have less regular periods. Um, so, so in terms of of that aspect, you know how how do you how do you talk about? I mean, part of the problem I think with with looking to judicial bypasses, it prolongs how long somebody is is pregnant, right? Um, so can you speak a little bit about that before we wrap up today? Yeah, and I think you touched on this. We also have terrible sex ed in this country. So a lot of young people don't have the information that they would otherwise have access to to know when they're pregnant um, and how long they've been pregnant. So these kinds of bans do uniquely impact young people. We also know young people, it takes more for them to access clinical care. Um, time off school, whether they're going to involve a parent, right? And if they're not going to involve a parent, a judicial bypass process can take weeks. Um, Absolutely. Scheduling a hearing, talking to the judge, waiting for the judge to make decision. Best case scenario, the judge um, allows for, for the bypass to go through. Worst case scenario, maybe they're stuck in appeals or they have to think about, do I need to leave my state, right? So all of those things uniquely impact young people's access and kind of these bans that are shutting down access very early are going to impact them in the long term. Thank you so much for for speaking to that. I think, are there things that most people don't realize young people encounter when they're trying to navigate their reproductive rights? Um, Things that you think we forget um, that you want to make sure our audience, you know, listening to WORT is aware of. These are the unique barriers that adolescent people, that young people face when they're trying to access their reproductive rights. Yeah, I, I think even among people who are uh, very well informed around uh, abortion access, don't know that young people have additional legal hoops to run uh, to run through. Maybe people think, oh, generally a parent has to be involved, but the types of hoops they have to run into, um, even if a parent is willing to be involved, going to the young person to the clinic, providing legal documents that prove their identity, um, getting consent notarized. All of those things are incredibly onerous, even in the best case scenario where there is an adult that's willing to support that young person. So I just, you know, definitely encourage people to, to do advocacy where they are to remove these barriers uh, so young people can access care. We've got about a minute left, and I cannot thank you enough for joining us today, Rebecca Wang, to talk about how, you know, how abortion uniquely impacts young people. Um, and, and thank you so much for speaking to, you know, the, the impact of not having access to sex ed and all of those sorts of things. If there are, you know, kind of easy steps people can take to get involved right now today, what are what are those? What would you ask our listeners to do um, to make sure that young people have have access to reproductive rights and reproductive freedom? Yeah, I think if you are right now in a state that does not have an abortion ban, is generally friendly to people seeking abortion care, please ask your legislators to make sure they are including protections for young people, including young people who may be traveling into the state to seek care. I think that is the number one need that we will see in the coming years. Thank you so much for joining us on WORT 89.9. You're listening to A Public Affair. My name's Ali Muldrow. Huge shout out to Rebecca Wang and Dr. Tracy Wilkinson for joining us today. Please tune in next week. And also, you know, we, we've got to just say, like, Rochelle, you're the absolute best. We are so, so lucky to have you. So thank you for engineering and producing. Rory, I hope you're, I hope you're doing all right. 